Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. I have to say, as much as I love summer, I do love fall and what so many of us refer to as sweatshirt weather. Yes, I know fall doesn't officially begin until September 22nd, but let's face it, for the vast majority of educators, when you're back at work, it's fall. I'm also excited to be back on the road. As of July 7th, I've been traveling again, facilitating workshops uh, in the United States. I've actually been to the United States uh, several times back and forth since early July, and it feels good to be back to somewhat normal again. Uh, Zoom has been good, uh, probably better than I had anticipated in terms of workshops, but there is nothing like the energy of being face-to-face. Fall also means football is back, and when football is back, That means fantasy football is back, and everyone in my 12-team league thinks they won the draft and loves their team. And then the first weekend happens, and reality sets in for the six teams that lost. So we'll see. I took a few chances this year. Uh, For the first time in three years, I did not keep Patrick Mahomes. Um, I might regret that, but hey, I've never won the championship, so you have to try different strategies and different approaches. I also drafted Darren Waller, a tight end for the Raiders, uh, in the second round. So he's been a beast, and and I'm hoping that drafting a tight end that early doesn't come back to bite me. My quarterback this year is Baker Mayfield, uh, and while I am not a Baker Mayfield fan, uh, I do think he's poised to put up a fair number of fantasy points this year. So anyway, I'll keep you posted each week on the ups and downs of fantasy football. I know you, those of you who have been with me since the beginning You uh, lived those ups and downs last year, and we're going to do it again this year. Uh, Thanks again for listening in uh, this week and and sticking with me. And as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. Your listening and following the podcast is greatly appreciated. And if you enjoy the podcast, please spread the word on social media or with your friends and colleagues. Today, my guest is Greg Walcott. Greg is the author of Significant 72, Unleashing the Power of Relationships in Today's Schools, and that is exactly what we explore throughout our conversation. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk about assessment and grading reform and break it down in terms of the specific mindset or approaches when colleagues are along the continuums of willing and able in terms of their ability to manifest the change both individually and collectively. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. We'll have my interview with Greg Walcott coming up momentarily, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a question about whether we, as a society collectively, whether we have become too serious. This is probably more a think aloud than anything else, but it's something that's been on my mind for quite a while now. And I want to immediately draw a distinction between taking things seriously and becoming too serious. I think the former is important because it's about the cause, and the latter is self-indulgent and has us shifting the spotlight more to us than the issue. There are issues that need to be taken seriously. Racial equity, women's issues, indigenous rights, just to name a few. Those issues are serious and they require serious action. I think my issue is when people become the cause or become the issue. They go from taking an issue seriously to taking themselves too seriously, and then it becomes all about them. That was a line we weren't supposed to cross, but recently it feels as if everything is full throttle 24-7, and that letting up, or even, God forbid, lightening up for just a moment, is met with the proverbial, well, I guess you don't really take that issue seriously now, do you? You may have seen similar incidents or videos online that I have. You know, different videos of people out protesting or advocating on behalf of those who might not be able to advocate for themselves. You know, they march down the street, they come across a person, and that person's just on their lunch break eating a, you know, a Subway sandwich or something. And unsolicited, the advocates approach that person and try to convince them to join the cause. And when the person responds by saying, well, you know, I don't think I can. I'm on my lunch break. I have to get back to work, but I'm, but I'm with you. They get the onslaught of pressure tactics, you know? I haven't seen this a lot, but I've seen a few of these videos where it's like, how can you eat at a time like this? There's no time like now to take up the cause. And if you really cared about this issue, you would join us. And do you think just posting something on Facebook occasionally means you're an activist or bringing about real change? And the person is sitting there looking at this, this, this other person saying, like, look, bro, I'm, I'm all about the cause, but it's Thursday. It's a Thursday afternoon. Can I just 
eat my, you know, six-inch cold-cut combo and get back to my cubicle this afternoon? My kid's got a baseball game tonight, and I'd like to not miss it. There has to be some downtime. We have to find the lighter moments in life. We have to be able to breathe. We have to be able to joke. We have to be able to joke with each other and not be so quick to be offended. Now, I'm not saying we should have permission to be offensive, but there does come a point where a person's intent has to be factored into how others respond. You can take issues seriously and still laugh. You can be all about a cause and still find the humor in situations. I notice this a fair amount in education. Our work is important. It's hard. And it needs to be taken seriously. And I do think sometimes some, a few, educators can be guilty of not taking the work seriously enough. But there does come a point where we take ourselves too seriously and our work too seriously. And I know, I know, (laughs) this idea of taking yourself seriously, I know this is somewhat ironic coming from the guy who named his podcast after himself. I get it. I see it. (laughs) But my own observation has me believing that the source of those taking themselves seriously is insecurity or uncertainty. It's insecurity in their positions or it's insecurity in themselves. So in that sense, observing or experiencing someone who takes themselves too seriously should be met with a little empathy. Not patronizing empathy, but an understanding that their inability to see the lighter side or the humor in even themselves or in their own positions is limiting them. Tomorrow is not promised to any of us. And I have seen and sadly experienced that kind of sudden loss in life and I know that we can have all the plans we want, and then life throws you a curveball, and you have to reprioritize all over again. Life is serious, but it doesn't always have to be serious. I feel like confident people are able to laugh at themselves and their idiosyncrasies. I also wonder sometimes if the tendency to take ourselves too seriously is a product of age. This is not another veiled shot at younger generations, okay? This, what I mean by this is that maybe we're prone to taking ourselves too seriously when we're younger because we want others to take us seriously, right? So when we are new to a school or new to the profession or maybe when we get hired to teach at our former high school where there are several teachers who are still there and they remember us as a student, so we want them to see us as an adult. We want them to see us differently. And so maybe we have a tendency to be too serious at a younger age. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I certainly have found that as I've aged, I have become more comfortable with who I am and more balanced in my perspective, that I can take things seriously, but avoid taking myself or life too seriously. Yes, Look, there are so many issues literally around the world that we could immerse ourselves in. And given the access we have to information 24 hours a day, seven days a week, these issues are in our face every single day. There are so many educational topics that we could immerse ourselves in. And you should. To a point. Not to the point where it consumes you and starts to undercut your happiness or your perspective. We can't control everything. And taking ourselves and life too seriously may be a sign that we're trying to do just that. I think not taking ourselves too seriously is actually a sign of self-acceptance. That we recognize our imperfections. And more importantly, we release perfection as a potential endpoint of our personal growth journeys. Perfection is not possible. So one of the things that I've recommitted to in my own personal journey is to not take myself or life too seriously. But emphasis on the two, right? Because life is serious. There are serious issues and serious circumstances that all of us face. For some of us, it's on occasion. And for others, the seriousness of life is relentless. And yet, in all of the seriousness of life, if we can find a way to see the big picture, find a way to remind ourselves that life in its totality is kind of ridiculous at times, it'll be good for our mental well-being. The irony for me, and, and, and maybe this is my biggest epiphany, is that by not taking myself and life too seriously, I feel like I'll have the energy and the mental bandwidth to take things more seriously, whether they be societal issues or my work. My worry is that we're already long down a societal path where the seriousness of life has consumed us collectively and that this perfection we strive for or we think we see in others, especially on their social media profiles, we think perfection is the measuring stick. It feels like our collective seriousness is making us more unhappy than ever before. 
I don't know. Look, maybe I'm overthinking it. When the big stuff is serious, and there's no doubt the big stuff is serious, with COVID and all the other societal issues that have come to the surface over the past few years, with the seriousness of the big stuff, we have to find joy and humor in both the small stuff and in ourselves. So going forward, take things seriously without taking yourself too seriously. That's my new, or more specifically, my renewed mantra going forward. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Joining me today for the interview is Greg Walcott. Currently, Greg is an assistant superintendent for the Woodridge School District in Woodridge, Illinois, and that is a Chicago suburb. Greg is also the author of Significant 72, Unleashing the Power of Relationships in Today's Schools, and that is what our focus is going to be today uh, as we have this conversation. So, Greg, welcome to the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Hey, Tom, thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today and, and talk a little about what I see as probably the most important thing in school, especially coming after COVID, and that's the relationships. Absolutely. I've uh, been looking forward to this conversation. You and I had a chance to connect a number of years ago at a conference, and uh, we haven't connected in a while, but this is a yeah. great opportunity for us to reconnect and, and talk about what I know you believe is a really, really important aspect of school, maybe, as you said, the most important part. And it's great to have you here. Uh, you know, certainly the start of the school year is a great time to focus on building those relationships. And we are going to get to that momentarily. Uh, but before we dig into that significant 72 and the power of relationships, Greg, uh, let's start with you and the arc of your career and, and maybe the impact points along that journey that led to you becoming an author, uh, and also an advocate for the significance of teacher-student relationships. You know, I think, um, Tom, I think it it, it, it kind of starts as, as a kid. Um, you know, a couple things. Uh, we moved around. I have three brothers, and we moved around a lot as a kid. And, and so I think I went to nine or 10 schools between during elementary, high school, middle school, nine, nine schools in that period. So I was constantly, you know, developing new relationships with, with teachers, new relationships with, with other kids. And I think that really um, impacted me in, in a positive way is when I had those teachers that, that were empowering um, and, and who, who helped me believe a little bit more in myself. You know, I, and, and there was definitely a difference between some teachers and, some, and, and others. And so I think that kind of started things. Then um, my dad became a, an elementary school principal and um, seeing and being a, involved a little bit more from an education and, um, you know, in his schools just gave me a different perspective. And so then I started, um, you know, played some sports in college and we would do some basketball camps and with young kids. And that just kind of led to that to that you know, pursuit then of becoming an elementary teacher um, and, and then elementary principal. Um, then, you know, district office. And, and then I started teaching grad classes. Uh, and, and one of the classes I taught, you know, predominantly was an action research class. And in this action research class, it was all about, you know, identifying a challenge you have in your classroom, um, reading some research about that, and then coming up with an intervention that you would put into place. And what I saw pretty quickly is about 50% of my grad students were putting in interventions to do their action research that were around classroom management, around discipline, around relationship building. And, and, and so it became, wow, this is you know um, a, a bigger deal. And I, I still remember one, one girl, Nikki, who was in one of my classes and, and she started a, her her intervention was specifically around building relationships and and doing what what I talk about in my book, which is called the two by four, where you take mm -hmm. um, two minutes a day with four different kids and just get to know them. And when it came time to to share her research with the class, she just kind of broke down in tears and she said, "You know, my cooperating teacher said not to be kids' friends; that I had to stay strong and that I had to 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 be the disciplinarian." And and she said, boy, through this research, did I see 
how how wrong that was and, and how much I missed out. So I think those are real. That's those are the big impact points for me. And what really got me into all right, let's listen. You know, fifty percent of the grad students, um, you know, focusing on disciplinary things and, and relationship building things, and and feedback issues around relationships. Probably better take a little deeper dive. And, and so that's when I became really, you know, really started to dive a lot deeper into it. It's interesting when you talked about how much uh, you had moved as a as a, a young child yourself. It, it it makes me wonder whether or not we as educators, uh, not not with any kind of malice or intent, but it, do we, you know, sometimes underestimate the impact of being new and the importance of of trying to find our way in a new environment and build those relationships. Um, do you think that happens sometimes, Greg? Do you think we sometimes underestimate the impact of 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 what it's like to be the new student in a school? Yeah, I, I definitely do. I, I think, you know, we are so quickly worried about, I, I think as educators, I think I, I, you know, did this at times is I was so worried about just getting the, the child in and getting them into the routines um, and, and maybe figuring out what their academic needs are that I that I don't think I spent as much time as I probably right. needed to now looking back on it. Um, and, and so I think that's one of the things that we've really pushed is, you know, what are those, you know, what are your welcome routines for kids that move in during the year? How are we going to um, intentionally build that teacher student relationship, mm -hmm. especially as it gets through middle school and high school? Yeah, I, 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 like I said, I don't think it comes from any position of intent. No. It's just we're so busy and we're we're yep. wanting to get on with the school year, and we're excited about the school year, yeah. and we have some new students, and we want to, you know, get get going with our work. The other thing that struck me as you were talking about that action research project was this continual uh, idea of this false dichotomy that you you can't you can't be a, a, a so-called disciplinarian or you can't have structure and it's either structure or you have relationships that you can't have both. And I just think we continue. And I think that's going to be a bit of our focus as we continue our conversation, because I think you yep. can do both. You can have a structured environment. You can have predictability in terms of how students feel in terms of the routines, and yet you can have strong relationships with those students. So let's jump into right. Significance 72 and let's ask the question, why 72? What is the significance of 72 and, and where did that come from? Yeah. So, so as I was teaching those graduate classes, um, Hattie came out, John Hattie came out with his book, Visible Learning. And, and so as I'm teaching classes, that, that book came out, so it became a natural to incorporate into the class. And um, I started really paying attention to, I kind of followed this, this process that, you know, every group of uh, students that I would have, um, I would research a different topic in depth. You know, so as they're going through their action research project, I wanted to make it authentic. So I was going through it with them. And, and so, you know, one group um, was all on, on teacher student feedback, you know, and so, um, you know, that's what I dove into for that eight week period. Another time it was micro teaching. Um, a, a third time it, it, it was the relationships. And so I would dive into that aspect of Hattie's research. And it at that point, his book had just come out and the effect size of teacher-student relationships was 0.72, um, which in essence means, two, you know, two years growth in, in one year's time, academic time. And, and um, through that, then um, it led me to see, wow, at middle school and high school, that that, that effect size um, is, it was actually stronger um, at the middle school and high school age. And so that's really what got me going in it. And um, it caused me to dive a little bit deeper. Hattie's research has since changed. He, he had a added a huge meta-analysis from from Korea with preschool kids that kind of changed the the impact to 0.55. But um, you know, um, the 72, 72 comes from that, and because I think that's pretty significant yeah. that those relationships have that large an impact. I think sometimes we can get caught up in the numbers and the rankings and just realize yeah. that there are certain things that we do that just have a significant impact. And whether it's 0.72 or 0.55, what we're really saying, right. what Hattie is really saying and what others 
we know, but it's nice to have the support behind it, which is that strong teacher-student relationships has a significant impact uh, on student learning. So, you know, at this point in the year, most schools, of course, have, have already started. They're already in session. But I know that you advocate for schools beginning the school year by setting aside those first 72 hours, there's that number again, those first three days to begin developing not just the student-teacher relationships, but the student-to-student relationship. So why do you think, from your perspective, is it so important for educators to be that purposeful at the beginning of the school year? Well, I, I think it's it, it starts by, you know, we have to develop um, that, that psychological, you know, not just the relationship, um, but the atmosphere of psychological safety in the classroom. And, and you know, at the essence of every relationship great relationship is is a sense of a of attachment with with someone and and that sense of attachment really is that you know i have your unconditional love your unconditional support that you care about me as much uh, about me as a as a child as you do a student and that even if i fail in this classroom academically you're not going to look at me as a failure And, and that 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 starting to develop that then creates that that environment where mistakes are okay. If I believe you feel that way about me, if if I believe and start having these connections with my kids, with my with my classmates, if I start feeling that, then again I feel I can make mistakes. I feel that I can be my true self in that environment. And so it's it starts with those first three days. How are we right away going to do that? And then. Um, you know, over the course of the year, you know, weekly, you know, every day, every day, how can we spend 72 seconds on relationship builders? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and we've had some incredible results is, you know, teachers um, getting rid of bell ringers and replacing them with connection creators, because as kids come in, instead of the stress of jumping right into a bell ringer, you know, let's get the kids, you know, you know, get their brain aligned and ready to go with some type of connection creator that helps so they feel that bond. Um, and, yeah. and so it's it's all about that intentionality. I was just going to ask you about you. You talk about eliminating those bell ringers. And I think so much of what we've done historically or traditionally has been well intended, right? There's good yes. intentions behind the bell ringers. And we understand the normal oh, yeah. cause of trying to do that. But we also recognize the stress and anxiety that that can create. And that doesn't put you in a position because we know that anxiety interferes with brain function, it interferes with your memory, your ability to pay attention and all of that. So as well intentioned as those bell ringers might be. I love the idea of a connection creator. What are some other strategies? What are some things, you know, even though the school year has started, there may be teachers out there thinking to themselves, okay, I didn't start the first three days with relationship building, but I want to circle back. It's early enough in the school year. They probably have more of a relationship right now, but what are some other things that teachers can do to try to forge those solid bonds with, with their students? Well, you know, one of them is, I think I think one of the things I turn to a lot is you know um, is is self disclosure. Self disclosure is us sharing things about ourselves, you know. And, and so I think teachers underestimate, um, especially as kids get older, how you know when we share things about ourselves, you know what we did over a weekend, what where we went to college, our first job, those things. That self disclosure goes a long way. Um, and, and, and starts, you know, uh, we don't let people into our life unless we care about them. So when we share those things, it sends that message. So I think, you know, the more we can do that, the more we can model vulnerability. I think, um, the, the number one thing that I, I, that, that the work is kind of proven is we have to to be vulnerable with our students and let them see that. And, and, you know, Brene Brown writes a ton about vulnerability and, and, and she talks um, in one of her books about trust as a marble jar. And every time you're vulnerable, you add a marble to that trust jar. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think for teachers, I think those are some of the quick strategies. How can I be vulnerable? How can how can I be vulnerable because I'm building that trust? You know, how can I do like that that grad student of mine, this two by four relationship? 
where I'm going to spend two minutes a day with four different kids just getting to know them. Or if I'm at a middle school, high school teacher, um, a one by four, I'm going to spend one minute a day with four different kids and just connect eye to eye with them um, and get to know them. Um, I think those are the simple things that can be done daily that, that we've seen just have a huge, huge impact. Yeah, you uh, you you took the words right out of my mouth. I w- my follow up was going to be how important is it for us to model vulnerability, mm. and you took that word right out of my mouth. And I think what I really appreciate about the two by four strategy or any strategies like that is two things. One, it's very purposeful and predictable for the teachers to methodically and purposefully go about building those relationships, and it also is an answer to the question of you know, Greg, what am I supposed to do when I have 120 or 150 right. students on my rosters every day? How do I build relationships with all of them? Well, you build yeah. them four students at a time, right? You you yeah, connect exactly. with them in, in that way. I want you to take some time and walk us through what you call the CAP matrix. Uh, I Because I thought this was a very clever way to look at the balance between care and academic press. And, and by the way, I absolutely love that expression, academic press. So our our relationships, of course, need to find the balance uh, between academic press and care, and and sometimes they do not. So explore that with us. Uh, Help us understand what you mean by the cap matrix and and some of the maybe the missteps that we may uh, come across. Yeah, so, so, you know, basically, when I was teaching my grad students, um, you know, I started surveying them who, who, who was the best teacher they ever had. You know, not their favorite teacher, who's their best teacher. And, and as I started doing that, um, there were two huge trends that all of those great teachers had high levels of care and high levels of press. And so, you know, when we look back and, and you know, you, your listeners, our listeners, you know, can look back and think of that great, te- those great teachers and what did they do differently? Well, they, they cared about me, they cared about my growth, but they pushed me hard. Um, and, and so it had to be the two pieces. And so um, basically then if we kind of use those as, you know, if, if we kind of use that as our guidepost or, or, or you know, and, and those two pieces as our cornerstone, um, you know, we can kind of create this matrix of high levels of care or low levels of care, high levels of press or low levels of press. And, and you know, press being a little different than expectations. Um, you know, we can say we have high expectations, but do students feel that? And I think that's the difference with academic press. Academic press is I feel feel as the student pressed by you as my teacher to succeed. And, and so, you know, we can then make a, a matrix of four different type of teachers. And, and so low and low, low press, low care is Wanda, whatever, doesn't really care what's going on in your class. Right. And, mm-hmm. and we don't have that many people. Um, high, high press, low care is kind of Dan, the drill sergeant. Um, we've all can think back of who that teacher is. Um, you know, high care and low press, I call Chris the camp counselor. And and we can think of that classroom, you know, you and I talked about our friend Tom Herrick and, yeah. and Tom and I were sitting together one day and, and, you know, and talking about that, that teacher is kind of the cotton candy classroom, you know, where, yeah, that teacher wants to be your friend. It's kind of like when I eat cotton candy, I love cotton candy, but a half hour later, I don't remember I ate anything. Um, and that's what can happen in that teacher's class. It's all about fun, but they're really not learning anything. Right. And then the pinnacle then is that high press, high care. Um, and, and that's where grit, you know, perseverance are developed. That's where academic achievement, love of learning um, can only be achieved in that classroom. Right. Um, self-esteem can only be achieved in that classroom um, where you're being challenged and pushed um, and while you're being challenged and pushed, you're being supported at the same time. That that speaks to that false dichotomy we talked about earlier. Uh, it's it speaks to why coaches often have such great yeah. relationships with their yeah. athletes, and and they push them, and and yet right. they are able to develop those deep relationships. And it's interesting because I'm 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 certain you've had a similar experience. But throughout the course of my career, one of the things that I've learned is that. Uh, to, to be demanding and have that press without being punitive is one of the lessons I've yes. learned over the course. And ironically, or not ironically, but I suppose ironic to some people would be the fact that as I learned to transition away from that connection to, to be tough or demanding and press without being punitive, 
your relationships deepen with those students and you have a stronger connection with them because there is nothing there is nothing that speaks to the relationship of a teacher and a student when the teacher looks at the student and says, I know you can do it. I believe that you can reach high levels of intellectual performance. That to me says, says that huge, huge, a huge part plays a huge part, I should say, uh, in, in how deep those relationships, uh, go. So I want to ask you about, um, repairing relationships, uh, because, you know, obviously, you know, we want things to go perfectly and we want them to go well, but what, what about a situation where a teacher has, you know, for example, lost their patience or acted emotionally or, or said, or did something that damaged the relationship with the student. And of course, I'm not talking here about crossing any serious lines. I'm I'm just talking about a moment where the teacher has handled things poorly and, and the relationship has been significantly impacted. What's the approach? How do we reconcile that? How do we bring that relationship back? Well, I think there's, you know, I think there's two parts to that 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 we've see that we see play out, and that is, you know, obviously the first part with the individual student, but a lot of times when that that conflict arises, um, other students in the classroom are aware of it, and so you know. I, I think it's important when we think of the other kids in the classroom that kids only feel as safe in a classroom as the worst behaving child is treated. Mm. You know, so if you misbehave and, and you and I have this relationship problem, but it is out in the public where everyone sees that, if I'm, you know, for example, if I yell at you, Tom, you know, come on, get your act together. Um, that we just jeopardize the safety with all kids in the class. And they're now going to wonder, okay, if he can yell at Tom, is he going to yell at me? Mm-hmm. So there's a repair aspect with the whole class that has to happen by me saying, you know what? Hey, class, I, I, I lost my cool. This, this wasn't acceptable, you know, and, and, and I shouldn't have done that. Um, so I think there's that aspect. The other aspect is, all right, now with Tom, how do I reconnect with Tom? You know, and, and, and that's where I think the, those purposeful one-on-one conversations are um, and, and the fact that we have to reconnect. Um, I think the next piece with it then is, you know, kind of like that, that movie, um, 50 first dates. I don't know if you ever saw that with Adam Sandler, yeah. you know, where, where the girl he was dating had amnesia, you know, had amnesia and every day had to date her again. I think that's what we have to do as teachers. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think great teachers have, have amnesia when it comes to challenging students every day is a fresh start. Every day is a fresh start. Yeah. And, and when we give kids a fresh start, we can then ask for a fresh start ourselves. And, and so, you know, kind of building that, that back um, one day at a time, yeah. one day at a time. Speaks to that vulnerability, doesn't it? In, yeah. in terms of coming in the next day and saying, look, I blew it yesterday. That was my fault. I overreacted. And again, as the only adult in the room, you know, we do have to take a disproportionate amount of the responsibility. Yeah. Certainly relationships take two people, but, but as the adult in the room, we, we have to really take that responsibility to say, I'm going to reach out how do we make sure like what, what we have to remind ourselves, don't we maybe comment a little bit on this. I I just wonder sometimes we want to repair the relationship, but that doesn't happen overnight. So there are times where we may have to be patient with the students. Would you, would you agree with that? That sometimes we have to be patient. They're not going to come around the next day just because you've apologized. That doesn't mean the relationship is hundred percent repaired. Is it? No. And and I think it goes, you know, let's, let's go back to that, that trust is a marble jar. You know, I just, I just broke that marble jar and I got to start all over, you know, so I've got to rebuild it a a little at a time, a little at a time. And, and, and we have to, you know, forgive ourselves. Hey, we're, we're all human. It, Mm -hmm. it, it, it's part of the, you know, the, the human experience to have those days that are up and down. We're going to have those days. The key is to make sure the child knows at the end of the day, I do care for, you know, I do care about you and and I'm here to help you succeed and um, not weigh too much on it ourselves. I think sometimes I, we see teachers who um, will have a day like that and they feel that, Oh, I can never repair it. Right. Right. You know, uh... and and, and then they give up instead of saying, you know what, it's repairable. It's just going to take time. Just building that trust back. Right. Because we, um, when we, when that trust is broken, many of the students who struggle with, with relationships with adults, it's that trust issue and being vulnerable and, and owning our mistakes 
there's often adults in their lives who have never owned up to their mistakes and right. owned up to their their uh, responsibility for the the damaged relationships that they have in other aspects of their lives. So that modeling to me is, uh, again, it comes back to that modeling. It comes back to yeah. being vulnerable, building that trust back up. And I think you're absolutely spot on when you say, look, it's going to take some time. We smashed the jar. We've got to repair that jar and we've got to start adding uh, marbles back into that. Uh, before we finish up today, uh, Greg, uh, any advice for teachers? Again, we've talked a little bit about this, but just, you know, how do we sort of any other advice for nurturing strong relationships, things we can do to establish those relationships? How do we, what are, what are some pieces of advice where maybe for new teachers or others who are just thinking about how do I go about sort of connecting with students when maybe those types of connections aren't always, um, you know, my forte uh, as, a, as, a, as an adult, as a person, any thoughts, mm -hmm. advice for teachers? Um, you know, I think, I think, you know, again, just the, the those little little things like those connection creators really start. Um, but if but if um, you know if, if we're not as comfortable with that, and maybe we're coming at it more from that drill sergeant end, um, how can we change? Um, you know, how, how can we change just some of the phrasing of how we do things? You know, and and and, and preface why we're doing things with a sense of care. You know, Tom, I'm pushing you hard today because I feel you're you're capable of achieving at high levels. If I didn't think you were capable of achieving at high levels, I'd give you something easy. Just that that simple message sends is empowering as opposed to um, and shows a level of care. So even if we start changing some of the words like that and, and our phrases and, and things like that, we can start sending that message. Um, you know, I, I think again, just that, you know, kind of connecting back to times where we didn't have that relationship and, and what our achievement could have been had we, been that way, yeah. um, you know, and, and not only with the teacher, but the group, you know, and, and so I think one of the things that we're seeing a lot of, of, of impact is from right now is um, when teachers start thinking of um, that social risk that students take in the classroom, um, when they're, they raise a hand or things like that, we can put ourselves back in a position when we had, when we didn't do as well because of the social risk in the environment. And that if the relationships were, were better in the environment, we probably would have taken a little social risk and therefore achieved at a higher level. Right. And, and, and so, um, let's, let's come connect back to that and, and, and really build that relationships amongst the classroom. Yeah, that connection uh, makes me think about at least beginning to know your students as learners and, and what sort of connects with them as far as the learning. You, you may hesitate to be vulnerable with them in terms of your, your, your private life. Not that you have to share the, you know, the deepest, right. darkest secrets, but you, know, you may not want, there are some teachers who aren't comfortable sharing anything personal. Right. One way that I, it makes me think about building relationships with students by starting with knowing them as learners and what inspires them and, and what they're curious about yeah. and, and how to connect with them that way. Yeah, um, and that's one of the reasons why those one-on-one -on -one conversations are right. so key. Right. You know? That, that to me is, uh, and, and the other part, again, coming right back to what we talked about earlier, those two by four strategies for those who are uncomfortable with, um, you know, stepping out and, and being a little bit vulnerable, those types of predictable systems or structures or routines can help, create a kind of opportunity for me to build relationships in a way that's a little bit more methodical and purposeful. And that actually yeah. helps me break out of my own comfort. Exactly. Zone. So yep. two questions, Greg, as we finish up, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Uh, two general questions I'm going to finish up with, uh, with you today. And the first one, uh, is educationally focused and, uh, you can take this in any direction, uh, you want, but educationally speaking, uh, what keeps you up at night? Um, you know, I think the, the piece that, that keeps me up right now is, um, you know, maybe under the umbrella of staffing and future staffing and, you know, n number one being the stress, you know, I think under that kind of the stress level of what educators are facing, um, and some of the challenges that educators have, I think the fact that, um, 
fewer people are going into the profession, um, at least here in the United States. Uh, you know, we used to have, you know, we used to put out a, a job application and, and have 300 people by the end of the day for a elementary school position. Now um, we're lucky if we have, you know, 30 after two weeks. Um, and, and so, um, you know, I think that's what, what keeps me up at night and that, you know, what, how might we help people see the great value in being an educator? Um, and, and how do we help those that are involved and already in education um, want to be want to stay in it? And 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 how might we help them reconnect with why they why they went into the profession in the first place? Yeah. You know, and and, and you know, and, and that's another reason why I think I push the relationships so hard is is you know that's why we got in it, and you know, and and teachers that say, wow, you know, okay, you forced me to do those two by four conversations, but you know what? That was a highlight of my day. Yeah. And I can't wait for tomorrow to have the two by four conversations with the next group right. of kids, right. you know? And, and so how do we keep, keep, keep educators in the game? It's uh, mentally it's, and physically. Uh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's a education and educators are an easy target and yeah. often take it on the chin from society. And, uh, I don't know, really know what the answer to that is other than the fact that we have to find a way to reverse that because I, you know, those yeah. who connect to the profession, those who are in the profession know how incredibly rewarding it is. And, uh, and yet for so many, they've just lost interest in a profession that I think there's a bit of, of, of mythology around, you know, the profession and, and the idea that, uh, yeah. um, you know, this, the way that society talks about educators and teachers, uh, we, we have to find a way to reverse that. Uh, this is the last question for today, Greg. Uh, it's a question I ask everyone I interview, um, and it really is a question about success and happiness. Um, and the, the question really is quite simple, is um, whether it's personal or professional, and I'll let you take this wherever you want to. What is your definition of success? You know, I think my definition of success is is really having the the knowledge, skills, and and attitudes to kind of navigate all the obstacles and opportunities that life brings forward. You know, do do I have the, you know, I think success is having that that knowledge, the skills, and the attitudes, using our strengths that that we each individually have. Um, to handle everything that that comes our way, that that to me is is success. Is is you know can I can I handle everything? Um, do I have you know we're gonna have a bad day, but do I have some strategies that I know how to combat after a, a, a bad day? Do I have an attitude that hey I realize oh, okay again fifty first date so we're gonna start again tomorrow, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, it, for sure. It, it, you know, the idea that uh, I continue to grow, I learn from my mistakes yeah. and, and uh, I continue to have the, the strength and resiliency to navigate through all the twists and turns that, that life brings us for sure. Uh, listeners, you can and should follow Greg on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Greg J. Walcott. Uh, same handle on Instagram as well. That's at Greg J. Walcott. And you can find Greg on LinkedIn uh, as well. Just search Greg Walcott and we'll put links in the show notes for all of those accounts. Also, uh, check out Greg's website, www.drivelearning.org. You're going to find a ton of tools there, resources, and information about Significant 72, as well as contact information for Greg, uh, should you be interested in having Greg uh, speak to your school or to your district. Greg, really appreciate you taking the time uh, to be here today. Thanks so much. Hey, Tom, appreciate it and honored and humbled for the opportunity. Thank you. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to focus on assessment and grading reform efforts, uh, specifically a question I've received a lot over the summer and even into the spring in many of the workshops and trainings I've been conducting. And it's the question that centers around, like, Tom, how do we know where to begin? Or what should our focus be when, you know, our faculty is in a particular place? And so to answer that question when it comes to me, I often ask leaders or early adopters to think about how willing and how capable they think their colleagues are when it comes to implementing the desired change. So that cross-section between sort of the willing and unwilling and the capable and incapable uh, creates four scenarios that actually can serve, I think, as a fairly good general guideline for how to proceed. Now, you can think of these scenarios as either this is where the majority of our faculty is, and that might 
you know, drive efforts collectively, but you can also think about them as individuals. If we have individuals in these particular scenarios, how might we proceed with them again individually? So let's take a look at each of those four potential combinations. The first one is probably the easiest one to deal with. It's the combination of willing and able. You've got a faculty collectively who are willing to move ahead with the proposed changes to assessment and grading, and they have the capacity to move ahead with the proposed changes on assessment and grading. So here's where you just want to move ahead with your implementation plan. Whatever plan you've put together, whatever you want to address. So for example, if you've decided that you want to address the assessment issues and look at formative assessment and begin to engineer more important feedback routines and start to shape the unpacking of standards and, and how we design our assessments, moving ahead toward grading. If that's your plan, then go for it. If your plan is to address grading first and begin to take away some of the egregious practices and then begin to work sort of backwards into the formative realm and talk about feedback, et cetera, if that's your plan, go ahead and do it. The bottom line is if your colleagues are willing and capable of moving ahead with the plan, then just move ahead with the plan. The second combination is still the willing, but now we have those who are incapable or unable to move ahead with the plan as it stands. Now, to be clear, the idea of being incapable doesn't mean they're incompetent. It just means right now they might lack the capacity or the fluency or the understanding of what the practices entail. So here's a scenario, the willing and incapable Here's a scenario where we'll probably be pretty focused on increasing opportunities for, you know, expanding their knowledge. So this could be in the form of book studies, uh, you know, uh, conferences, online events, uh, articles, uh, different experiences that help grow their knowledge in what assessment looks like. But also, these are folks who probably need some practice with the new approaches to assessment and grading that are proposed in our implementation plan. So again, here's where coaching comes in, right? These are people who need to grow their knowledge and practice a little bit, maybe with some guidance, maybe with some advice from the early adopters. Uh, they, they're willing to move ahead with the change. They just might not understand what that change is supposed to look like. And so that coaching can be very helpful for them. Now we move to the other scenarios, and the other two scenarios are a little bit tougher because when you have the combination of unwilling but capable, that can be frustrating as a leader or as an implementer or as a change agent because you know that there is a collective capacity to move ahead with the plan. It just seems that people are resistant or hesitant. And with that hesitancy now, what I would think about is tailoring the implementation efforts to focus on what, what I might call low effort and high yield practices or where you get the minimal amount of resistance. So low effort, high yield practices might be something that the, this group of individuals, you know, let's say the faculty is unwilling uh, but, but capable, try to find areas where they're already doing it or there's some semblance of what you're proposing already in place and therefore they can capitalize on that. So therefore it would require low effort for them to implement something because they've got most of it in place already. They may not realize that they're doing it, um, but the high yield comes from the refinement, right? So the refinement happens and suddenly they go from good to great and they realize that, you know, they already had some of these things in place. It was pretty seamless to make that change. So target those areas. Look where there's, again, to, to use the expression, low effort but high yield practices. Or it might be wise to think about, okay, I realize you're hesitant, but is there one aspect of our proposed change that you find most agreeable or, or that, that is closest to what you're already doing? Or it's something you find the least resistance to? Even solicit their information you know, from them and just say, you know, where can we begin this process? And so see where you get minimal resistance. Um, this, this is probably where you're going to implement sort of with the eye on that cliche that says think big, start small. Uh, but the unwilling but capable, that can be frustrating because, uh, like I said earlier, uh, you know they have the capacity to do it, but they're just resistance for some reason. And obviously in this scenario, you want to find out why. Why, why the lack of willingness? Why, what is the source of that? Why are you unwilling to move ahead? Now, the last one where, you know, you have the unwilling and the incapable, okay? They're not willing to change. They don't really know what the change looks like. Um, and, and that might be uh, a frustration. If the collective staff and faculty is in the place where they're unwilling to make that change and maybe they lack the capacity to make the change, 
then I think we need to modify our plan and have the plan focus on exploration. Um, as opposed to having a definitive plan that says, here's what we're going to do over the next six months, or here's what we're going to do over this school year, or here's where we want to be in the next three years. Back off a little bit and build a plan or you know, construct a strategy that says, we're just going to explore these ideas. We want to see if any of these ideas are actually suitable for our school. So we're going to take our time because you're better to get it right than to rush into something that folks, you know, in both cases, they aren't willing to budge and it's clear they don't have the capacity to make that move either. So that's a tough one for sure as well. I think the, you know, either scenario with the unwilling is a tough one, but the unwilling and the in incapable build a sort of slow release. Like it's a very gradual plan of thinking about, all right, let's get this right. Let's do a little exploration. Let's think about how we can expose people to some content in a very controlled way without giving the impression that there's a hidden agenda or without giving the impression that we're trying to rush anything, we're not trying to overwhelm people. And again, the question of unwilling, you always want to ask the question, why? What is the source of the resistance? What is it that's not working for you? So here we might say, let's just read an article, let's do a book study, let's go to a conference and let's just see if there's something there for us. So in that scenario, that is a tough one. But like I said, if you combine the willing and unwilling with the capable and incapable, those four scenarios really do give you a, a nice point of entry or a nice guideline. Now, of course, as I said, that can be an examination of the whole faculty. Chances are, in your school, if it's large enough, chances are you've got people at every one of those phases or in every one of those quadrants, if you will, right? So you build your plan. So ask yourself, where's the majority? And now think about those individuals, right? Because it's the individuals where you're going to support them in, in moving them forward uh, individually, right? So pay attention to that both collectively, but also uh, individually. Because the most effective implementation plans are the ones that bring up in, in, you know, the ones that bring about long-term change. The most effective plans are the ones that are attentive to the context. That's why there's really no definitive answer to the step-by-step -step process of how do we bring about assessment and grading reform. Um, pay attention to the context. You know, where should we begin? Well, where are you now, both collectively and individually? That's going to dictate what the most favorable course of action is going forward. All right, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well, at Tom Shimmer. The Shimmer Education on Facebook, at Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram. And don't forget about the YouTube channel as well, Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube. Also, please email your questions for Assessment Corner or any podcast suggestions you have. Maybe you have got some suggestions for guests. Uh, email TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be author and speaker Rachel Carrillo Fairchild. Our focus will be on how we support English language learners, so you won't want to miss that one. Rachel is fantastic and her expertise is inspiring. Please subscribe, follow, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And if you like the podcast, please continue to spread the word about the podcast on social media or with your friends and colleagues. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 